The views expressed and the opinions given by the individual host, guest, random reptoid, or chupacabra may not necessarily reflect those of AM950 Radio, its affiliates, or its sponsors. Now, it's time to step into the unknown. There are things people experience but never talk about. A shadow moving in the corner, flickering of the lights, a disembodied voice. We invite you to talk with us, share your story, share your experience, because this isn't just your story, this is our story. This is Ghost Box Radio with Greg Bakken. And this is Ghost Box Radio on AM 950, where every night we talk about the paranormal, ufology, Bigfoot, and so much more. My name is Greg Bakken. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Happy Monday, everybody. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wanted to say, uh, just kind of being nice and just, you know, cordial, and I just wanted to uh, just say what I did over the weekend, and uh, I... I I don't, I don't remember. I actually was asked today, how was, how was your weekend? And I was like, I don't remember what happened on Saturday. And that's kind of, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's kind of sad. And, and before anyone has any smart ideas, had nothing to do with drinking. I have not drank. I don't, I just don't remember. I think it was, I think it's more because it was uneventful on a spectacular level that it, uh, there was, there was nothing uh, that I can remember from it. Uh, but uh, I hope you had a more eventful weekend than I did uh, because uh, it really it really was just like I, I've been struggling all afternoon to, to kind of think what I did. And uh, whatever it was, it was very boring. I can I can clearly, clearly give you that. And I don't even think that I, I cooked anything good or anything. So there we are. Uh, you know, as, as we're getting into it, um, I'm really excited uh, tonight to have back on Michael J. Warden. Uh, we we're talking tonight about his book, his first true crime book uh, that he had done, uh, The Murder of Richard Jennings, The True Story of New York's First Murder for Hire. And as you know, we haven't done a ton of true crime on on the show. So I'm very excited to be able to uh, do that and then bring on uh, Michael tonight. And if you have any questions, if you had a chance to read this, uh, definitely go check it out or let us know, first of all. If you haven't, uh, it's available on Amazon, but I do ask if you go through ghostboxradio.com and on the top menu bar it says uh, Ghostbox Book Club. And there, uh, if you get his book, and he has a, a couple books that we have on that page. Uh, if you get the book, uh, a little bit of a little bit of Doremi comes back to Ghost Box Radio. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, everyone, everyone should win in these situations. Michael, welcome to Ghost Box Radio. Hey, Greg. I'm glad to be back on. I, I really look forward to talking to you on these these forums. So, well, I'm, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad that you're able to get on. I know that uh, there's a lot of busyness. A happy New Year, first of all, Michael. It's uh, it's great to uh, to be able to get you on. And uh, yeah, I mean. This is this is the first of your was this the first book that you written no. or is the first true no. crime book? This is the first true crime book. The the first book was um, Ghost Detective, which I wrote That's right. in two thousand nine about my experiences as a as a paranormal researcher in the in the paranormal field. Sure. So this was my first foray into true crime though. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, first of all, uh why don't uh we kind of delve into this a little bit? Um 
And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book, please? Yeah, so the murder of Richard Jennings is, it's a true historical crime. We're going back to the uh, late 1818, so quite a few years ago. Yeah. And it's in Orange County, New York, where I come from. And at this time, there's um, a land dispute in a family. Mm -hmm. So basically, you have a family fighting over 50 acres of land. Now, to make a long story short, basically, you know, a father um, bails his son out. You know, the son has worked for the father, kept him debt free. So this father says, you know, after I'm dead, I'm going to give you 50 acres of land, but you can't have it till your mom passes. Mm. And the son, you know, that's a fair deal. He's got his own family. Well, the uncle, the mom's brother of all people, manages to get that 50 acres signed over to him. And that begins this oh. protracted battle for years between uncle and nephew. Uh, the nephew's name is James Teed, and his wife is Hannah Teed. They're, they're very important players in this. And, you know, they, they take pleasure, basically, in suing one another in the local courts. Uh, this is a time when you could have people put in jail for not paying their debts. So one of Teed's good friends, a man named David Conkling, from a very well-to-do family, in Orange County, gets involved in it. And at one point, he would buy debts that Richard Jennings had at double the face value, just so that he could demand the debt to be paid. And when Richard Jennings couldn't pay it, then the sheriff would have to put him into the jail until it was paid. So, mm -hmm. you know, an absolute back and forth. And then there's another gentleman named David Dunning, who is sort of a, a tenant farmer with his family. Um, I really think this guy's probably got the shortest end of the stick. And the most fascinating character is an African-American man, man named Jacob Hodges. He lives with David Conkling and his family. He tends his own piece of land. He's never been a slave. He's much older, too, than the rest of the men involved. And he's a former sailor. So you can imagine the papers of the time talk about this man having every vice that you can imagine a stereotypical sailor is supposed to have. So at the end of 1818, to make a really long story short, the local courts have settled a dispute over land. Richard Jennings can have the property, but he can't get it till after the first of the year. And then he can make application for possession. He's going to kick everybody off the land that is involved in anything. The Teeds are going to lose money, the Conklings. They decide the only way to get rid of this problem is to kill the old man, Richard Jennings. You know, he's already in his 70s. Um, so they conspire and they decide they're going to pay Jack Hodges money to kill him. And that's exactly what happens. The December of 1818, he walks up to check the wood lot as he did on every day because they were back and forth cutting wood. And um, Jack Hodges and David Dunning approach him and he's shot, which doesn't kill him. So then he's beaten to death with the butt of a musket. And he's left there in a field. And of course, when he doesn't come home, the first place they look is the field. And within a few days, the whole plot has fallen apart. And by the beginning of the new year, five people have been arrested for conspiring to murder Richard Jennings or for murdering him, wow. um, which is, you know, the Teeds, Dunning, Conkling, and Hodges. And in the spring of 1819, they're indicted by the grand jury, uh, David Dunning and Jack Hodges for murder. Mm -hmm. uh, David Dunning also for accessory before the fact. And then everybody else is indicted for accessory before and after the fact. In New York at the time, murder 
an accessory to murder before the fact was a mandatory death penalty case. The judge had no sentencing discretion. So all five of these defendants were now facing the gallows, Wow, which is a pretty big deal. So, you know, as a researcher, and at the time I was um, still a detective, I, I was still working in that position. And it struck me as just like, I'd never heard of this. I grew up in Orange County my whole life. And how can you have such a fascinating case um, and no one knows about it? And, yeah. and there's so much more to it. I mean, I'm boiling down a just a, an obsession, really. It became for me for, for several years as I dug into this. It, it's kind of like, first of all, for for them to murder, uh, uh, for them to murder uh, uh, Richard Jennings, it's like, first of all, obviously, these people are going to be the first people that are going to be looked at. I mean, it just, I mean, it just, I, I think it's really a testament also to how, you know, run into revenge that they were, how, how they, you know, it was, it blinded them, didn't it? Yes, it, it, it definitely blinded them. Um, I think, you know, even the local papers at the time sort of allude to the fact that, you know, like, look, Richard Jennings was probably not long for the world anyway at his age. You probably just could have waited him out, but. I think at the end, it's humiliation, it's financial concerns, you know, they're going to be put out, they don't know where they're going to go. And um, I think it was the culmination of a frustration, like just, we've had enough, and they made a really bad decision, and followed through with that bad decision. And that really has a snowball effect of consequences for everybody involved. You know, it sounds like, like you said, this is something that you got very interested in, uh, that uh, was the was intrigued you did the research like just the research of going into it looking looking at it did that come before really any decision that you wanted to write a book about it yeah so initially i started off to write a the initial project was i was going to write a book about a bunch of older crimes but like a chapter about each crime and i quickly realized that each of these stories i was looking at required much more than a chapter to really do them justice how I wanted to. Yeah. So I, I started looking at a case up in Albany, New York. It was an 1827 murder, um, a love triangle, very bizarre story. Um, and it's, of course, a haunted location. That's how I even found out about it. But it was a footnote in a legal decision in that case referencing this one that sort of caught my eye. So initially, it was going to be a whole other case for that book. Um, and I'm still going to write that one. I just sort of got sidetracked, as you know. Mm -hmm. But... So I'm like, you know, let me just peek at this Orange County case that's sort of referenced in a legal case. Um, from there, it just took off. And, you know, there wasn't a lot written about it. And so I like a challenge where, okay, I'm going to tell this story and probably be the first person to ever tell it accurately. Because anything written about it before me was just all over the place. Sure. And it was people repeating other bad information. You know, the, the, the game of telephone over the, the last couple hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I suppose, too, that, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, and not that I'm not saying that it's right that they did this, but they probably didn't really care because who's going to check up on the facts? Well, I, I think, you are, but. Uh. Right. I, and I think that was part of it. And I think, you know, the racial attitudes at the time, if it fell apart, I think they thought, well, who's going to believe Jack Hodges? Yeah. He's an African-American. Yeah. He's illiterate. You know, he doesn't read. He's a wicked sailor, a drunk, you know, like, well, even if we get caught, 
yeah, they may get him, but are they really going to think we were somehow involved in it? And I really think that was part of it. You know, there's no way to prove that, but I do believe that was sort of um, in the back of their minds. That yeah. was their failsafe. Well, and two, that there is there's something to be said that, and, you know, I think any time that you do this sort of work, when you're looking back in history or something, that you're kind of putting, like, the in a sense, the soul of uh, Richard Jennings' soul to rest in a sense because you're – you're going doing the due diligence to tell the whole the whole correct story, which, like you said, hadn't really been around. You know, no one no one really knew. Yes, exactly. And you know, everything that's written about Richard Jennings is he doesn't sound like he was a very nice guy. No. Um, he was definitely tough because even after he was allegedly beaten to death and left as dead, when they did find him, he had managed to crawl a distance in the ground even after having been shot. And beaten, he managed to crawl a certain distance before he he finally died. So, um, you know, his memory, whatever his personality was, deserves to be remembered. And, you know, what happened to him? Well, if you say that, maybe he wasn't going to live. He maybe he was going to live a lot longer <laughs> he, than he, you thought. You know, <laughs> or they he, thought <laughs> he might have. I mean, I mean, this was probably a guy that he, worked. You know, worked the land. He he worked his whole life. It just was. Uh, he was tough as nails, I guess. He might have still been around now if they didn't murder him, <laughs> yeah. for all I know. You know, I don't know. Had he lived, had, had he survived, I could have interviewed him, possibly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> are, are you sure? You know, it's interesting, you being a paranormal investigator as well. You know, I don't think we've ever really talked about this too much. Have you ever tried to reach out to the people that you are you are doing your books on? You, you know, I haven't. Come and. On. Not because it hasn't crossed my mind, but I sort of walked a very fine line between the, the paranormal researcher side of me and then the, the true crime slash historian in me that looks for that. Um, what's the happy medium between these two different worlds I sort of wobble between? And I just sort of felt like if I if I blended them too much, it may inhibit the credibility in the historical field. But so I want those works to stand as. Yeah. independent you know works in, in my mind though it's not something that you have to share with anybody though that's true and you know maybe that's something you and i should talk about sometime I'd, you know <laughs> i'd like to because you know that that is actually you know funny enough uh we just had on angela uh Boley. uh i don't know if you know her she's a psychic uh portrait artist and uh, she's been talking about her past lives uh she's been tracking them down and on friday i suggested to her why don't we do a spirit box session that's my that's my jam uh, so, you know, I mean, like you said, and that's just it, it, these are, you know, if you did get a hold of them, it's private moments, you know, um, right. is, is that, is that Richard playing with your camera that you're unable to, uh, uh, keep it, keep it steady or cause he is tough. Yes, it is. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite all right. It's, it's all right. You know, it's the, the lack of heat in my office actually. <laughs> it's, you know, the funny thing is the majority of our audiences is on radio and uh, they would have had no idea if I didn't out you. So, uh, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we why don't we go ahead and do this? Let's uh, go ahead take our first break. When we come back, we're gonna continue talking with uh, Michael J. Warren about his true crime book, The Murder of Richard Jennings, the true story of New York's finest first murder mystery for hire. You're listening to Ghost Box Radio on AM 950. And 
Welcome back to Ghost Box Radio on AM 950. My name is Greg Bach, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. I am still trying to sit here trying to figure out what I did this past weekend. I really have no idea, but that's okay. It doesn't matter because uh, the main thing to talk about right now is that we have author Michael J. Warden. Uh, we've been talking about the first true crime book that he wrote back in 2013, uh, which was uh, The Murder of Richard Jennings, the true story of New York's fi- uh, first murder for hire. I want to keep saying finest murder for hire. I don't know <laughs> if it is or not. but uh, It wasn't the finest. <laughs> it, sure. it, seemed, it seemed very flawed, you know, as we were talking about in the last segment. I mean, it just seemed – and this, this is why you never get involved with your family on any sort of – really any level. But, uh, you yeah. know, when it, when it comes to you – know, it just – the money brings out the worst in everybody, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, you know, I always go back to something people say, you know, oh, things were so much better in the old, in the, in, in the days gone by in the past. And really, you know, people were killing people over reasons as, as financial like this going way back. You know, we weren't any better than we are today. Michael, I think we just hear about it more. I think that's a fantastic point uh, because I was thinking about this just in the world in general. And there are things that are truly heinous. There are things that are maybe much different than they were back then. But, you know, because of the world not being connected as it is now, I also noticed that, you know, there are so many bad things that have happened in the past that have simply been forgotten to time. Uh, if it's, if it never made like national attention, even stuff that did make national attention, you know, not that this is a heinous thing, but I just think about like, uh, you know, what the, the UFO thing, the battle for Los Angeles during world war two, you know, something like that is not necessarily known by a whole lot of people. Right. So, right. So and it's good to remember these, these events and keep them going. It, it sure is. And for those of you who don't know what that is and you're like, why was that battle for what, you know, <laughs> uh, go look it up. <laughs> I did an episode about yes. it about two years ago. So go, go listen to my shows. Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's this is what it's come down to, Michael. It's I'm begging, hey, listen, I'm begging people. Do. Yeah, right. Hey. Please listen. All right. So, okay, a couple things that uh, I I had seen that you had noted was that you had talked about that there were some myths and legends that were kind of uh, surrounding this. What what happened here with uh, Richard Jennings? Uh, could you kind of go into a little bit more detail about that, please? Yeah, so the first actual source I found that told the story, um, purported to tell the story at least, really delved into the case, um, almost 90% of it probably either misinformation or wrong, but there was a lot of legends that seemed to crop up. And there were also some of these repeated at the time of the case. So it's a mixture of things that were happening in 1818-19, and then later on when the stories being told, you know, decades and probably more than that later. Um, you know, some of them being like, um, so ultimately two of the men are hanged in front of 20,000 people in 1819. So that's a lot of people. It's, that was actually the population of Orange County, yeah. 20,000. So two of the men were hanged. Um, two of the other men had their sentences commuted to prison. And the only one who kind of got off was Hannah Teed. She was pregnant. And they allowed her to plead to a non-death penalty offense. Okay. Um, she went insane and ended up drowning herself in the Hudson River oh a few gosh. years later. And, Very sad. And if she wasn't pregnant, though, she would have been 
she would have hanged as well, right? I, I, I think, you know, but I also think that they were looking for a way out. You know, there hadn't been a hanging in Orange County since the this Revolutionary War. Oh, where wow. they hanged, they hanged Claudia Smith, who was the, they called him the cowboy of the Ramapo. Um, but I think <laughs> they didn't want to hang a woman. They already were looking at yeah. hanging four men. Yeah, I don't think, and I understand that. Um, but ironically, Jack Hodges is the one who testifies against everybody else, the African American man. Yeah, um, he actually turns witness against everybody. So. Um, you know, fascinating. I think they thought they wouldn't believe him, but it turns out that an African-American man convicted the other three white males that were involved in this case. So, yeah, um, an interesting twist of events. But some of the legends that really popped up, for example, there was a legend that the men that were hanged, they couldn't find a place to bury them, that no cemetery would accept the body. Oh, OK. And so later at the, you know, the end of the day, uh, a local cemetery said, yes, you can bury them on our property, but they cannot be inside the walls of the cemetery. You can bury them on the outside of the cemetery walls, meaning in the unconsecrated ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it's rumored that late at night, after these men had been, you know, interred into their graves, a group of men came along with giant locust stakes and drove them into the graves now, the only reason someone would be driving stakes into the grave goes back to old superstitions around vampires. Yes. And being buried in unconsecrated soil, hanged people, suicides, etc. A lot of people had very strange fears of these things. So to think they were doing that in 1819 is kind of creepy. Um, it, it, it is. <laughs> it, it, it is. Um and uh, do you, I mean, it wasn't stated as such though, right? I mean, it, it just, the, it's just what they, be, that everyone believes is what they believe as far as staking uh, those, those corpses. Right. And, and ultimately what I found out was that that didn't happen. It didn't Actually, happen. They, okay. No, they were, they were buried privately with their families. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what cemeteries. I couldn't find that. Probably on private, the Teeds, for example, were big farmers. They had a big farm property. They're probably buried on a property of their own. Um, but another one that was rumored in the local papers was that one of the men had been brought back to life after he was hanged, David Dunning. <laughs> He'd been seen walking around Orange County in the days following his death. Um, now, this turned out to be such a powerful rumor in 1819 that after a week, they went and exhumed his grave. Yeah. And of course, when they opened his grave, he was still lying quite dead in his coffin where he had been placed. Um, but that had floated around. And apparently I was able to find evidence that they did attempt to revive him using galvanic experiments. So there's a hint of truth to that rumor. There is a hint. In um, it. And as as, but, Chuck, as Chuck says, you can't hang a man twice. <laughs> no, you can't. Um so I, I wish I could find out more about the galvanic aspect of it. That pops up in a lot of these old cases. Um, it's, you know? it's interesting. First of all, uh, thank you to Chuck also. Chuck is on, I believe that's probably on my Ghostbox Radio Facebook page. He's been putting up uh, the links to go ahead and get the book, The Murder of Richard Jennings, The True Story of New York's uh, First Murder for Hire. Also, he put up the link for Lynched by a Mob, the 1892 lynching of 
Robert Thank Lewis you. in Port Jervis, New York, which we also did an uh, episode of that you can go and find. And then he also put up the uh, the link for Ghost Detective. Thank I, you. I, I, is he? Are you paying him for this? I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. But I appreciate the. You know, hey, listen. If I can get my books out there, you know, I'll never make it rich. But I do like no, like knowing that they're being out there and being read. You know what I find I'm more what, than more than just my parents. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know what? What's interesting too is that um, you know when you said that there hadn't been a a, a, a hanging since the Revolutionary War. In 1818, that's not that far apart, actually. You know, that's the weird thing no. about that. I mean, it's it's far enough, but, I mean, it's still like, you know, I think about that, it's like, yeah, that was, what, another, you know, 200 years or something? No, it was, what, a matter of uh, probably uh, 25 to 30 years, perhaps. Yes, yeah, it really isn't that far away. Um, but to them, it would have been, you know, these would have been a big population change, and I yeah. think, um, and it was a big spectacle. Like it would have been at those days. Um, but you want me to get back to the legends real quick? Yes. So in addition to the sort of that supernatural overtone, there was legends that, you know, there was this dramatic moment on the gallows where they brought all of the condemned people, all five, according mm. to the, the articles. And, you know, moments before they're about to be hanged, the sheriff pulls out of his pocket a piece of paper and reads that, you know, the sentences had been commuted for you know, three of them. Well, that never happened. And, you know, they were never taken off the gallows. They were never even brought there. Uh, but that did happen in Cooperstown at the beginning of the 1800s to a man. Sure. Um, so, you know, the sheriff waited right up till the final moment and then decided to tell him he wasn't going to hang. But he let him get really close. So well, now we I know think... now we know where those television tropes came from. Yes, they really did happen, apparently. Um, but I think the most fascinating was this this character of Jack Hodges, because they talk about Jack Hodges and David Conkling. Those are the two men that get their sentences commuted. Yeah. And both end up getting out of prison at some point. They do go to state prison. And David Conkling, it's rumored, was very sick. And he died shortly after getting out. And his family was so, like, appalled by his conviction that they changed the spelling of his name on his gravestone. And they even put the wrong date of death on his gravestone, like so that you couldn't tell it was it was him. Oh, wow. Uh, kind of a silly rumor, a little bit of truth on the gravestone part, um, because he died in like 1840 and the, the four was wearing off of the gravestone. So it looked like 1810. So someone in the future after he died, you know, in the 60s, 50s, went, looked at his grave and saw 1810. Um, and his last name was Conkling, but they had dropped the G, so it was Conklin on his gravestone. Okay. Which, which they tended to switch back and forth anyway. They weren't hiding anything. It was just what it was. But Jack Hodges, um, if I could meet one person from my books, it would be Jack. It said that when he was in prison, he found God, had this miraculous spiritual awakening, became a revered spiritual leader in the Finger Lakes region of New York, upstate New York, um, lived for a while in the home of William H. Seward. That would be the future pre President Lincoln's Secretary of State, William sure H. Seward. Sure would be, yeah. Who was from Orange County, by the way. His father was one of the, the commissioners on the court where the Jack was convicted, Samuel Seward. 
Um, and then Jack ended up going to live in Canandaigua, where when he died, they erected a monument in his honor. Now, I thought that was just so much information. How can any of that be true, let alone all of it? Yeah. Right. Well, Jack Hodges didn't live with William H. Seward. So that part wasn't true. However, he did live at the steward's office or the steward's building of the Auburn Theological Seminary. So I think there was some truth. He lived with a steward. <laughs> William Seward did live up in Auburn, had a place. And the New York, I think the Orange County connection was a bit much. But it turns out Jack Hodges does have quite the monument in his honor in Canada, New York. Wow. And he did become a spiritual leader. He, you know, he was up, he was one of the first inmates to be brought up to Auburn prison when it was opened. And back then inmates weren't allowed to talk. You were supposed to be penitent, penitentiary. Okay. They were given a Bible. Jack couldn't read or write, but he taught himself to read with the Bible. A minister sat with him and started with in the beginning. And not only did Jack learn to read, but he does have this, and he describes it when you read, there's books about Jack Hodges. And it's almost a supernatural awakening he has in his cell mm -hmm. where he becomes overcome with what he, you know, the spirit of God and Christ. And he becomes someone who's sought out. People come to the prison to visit him and to, to, to minister with him. And when he's released, he is eventually brought into the home of a widow up in Canandaigua, where he works. He lives in her carriage house, takes care of her property. He's much older, too. He's not a young man. He attends church in the congregational church, first congregational church, and he does not sit with the African-Americans. He sits with the white congregation in their rented booth their rented pew because back then they had to rent their pews so he sat with the white people the african-americans had to sit on a balcony overlooking the church mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um this is when slavery is legal in a lot of parts of the country right still yeah absolutely <laughs> and he would minister so families having spiritual crises he would go to their homes to minister to them to counsel them to pray with them. Um, and these were the homes of white people in Canandaigua. In fact, he didn't associate, it said, with the African-American community locally, mm -hmm. that he really kept to himself. Um, when the home he lived in, when the, the widow was, the house was being sold, they sold it on the condition that the new owner had to keep him on, let him live in the carriage house until he died. And the new owner was a man named Myron Clark, who was, later went on to be a governor of New York. So he did did live with someone rather prestigious, you know, a future a governor. Um, and it's his daughter that ends up, they do put a marble monument on his grave. And then Myron Clark's daughter later has a bronze plaque put on it because the marble is sort of getting a little worn. Sure. But he does. He has this beautiful monument, and it talks about how he was condemned, wicked, you know, tempted to sin and found God. His funeral was well attended in 1840s. You know, it was like the whole town turned out to see Jack Hodges off. Uh, just a very, at the end of this whole research I did, this horrible crime, this, you know, this 
lives on upended, you know, the Teeds, for example, they had kids and, you know, their father's hanged, their mother is insane and drowns herself. And these kids are raised by other family members, fortunately, and it seems to have gone on to normal lives, but the effect this had on so many other people. And then to see at the very end, this, this glimpse of redemption at the end was just very, it was very good. I liked that part of it. It's, it's odd and backwards to think that, uh, Hodges may not have found that if none of this had happened. Yes, that is, that is the truth. And, you know, there's some controversy whether Hodges actually killed him or the other man, David Dunning did. Dunning claims he was there when it happened, but didn't participate. Hodges says, yeah, I shot him, but I, I only hit his ear and then Dunning beat him to death. So whatever really happened was Jack motivated by guilt Maybe, maybe because he sent an innocent man to his death, David Dunning. Um, you know, we'll never know, but his conversion was certainly real. You yeah. know, there's no doubt that the yeah um, that his experiences in his later life, and they actually use him. Some people, this was a big debate at the time for the death penalty, and people that were against the death penalty used him as an example of, look what would have happened. If you had hanged Jack Hodges, look what would have, you would have lost this. This is the man he became. Wow. This is why you shouldn't, you know, like, look at, he is redeemable. People can be redeemed. Um, That's so it's an interesting argument. It, it really is. Uh, why don't, why don't we uh, go ahead, take our next break. Uh, when we come back, I still want to talk a little bit more about these myths and legends. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about with this book. We're talking with Michael J. Warden. You're listening to Ghost Box Radio on AM950. And join us tomorrow on Ghost Box Radio as we are going to bring in Mr. Zero. You're probably wondering, you may not know, you might not be wondering who Mr. Zero is if you are in the Twin Cities. He has a place. Uh, where you can get pop pop culture stuff in the Twin Cities. He's in Roseville. He's going to be in studio tomorrow. He wants to be in all of this, all of this grandeur tomorrow. And uh, we're going to, we're going to have him in here. We'll we'll put him in the other room, and uh, we're going to be talking about pop pop culture. We're going to talk about some of the stuff he sells uh, bands because he's he's uh, he's been around a couple. Uh, it's it's going to be a really interesting conversation. I really don't know what else to say about it other than that because I think this is going to go all sorts of places. It's going to be a lot of fun. Then Wednesday, I'm going to have on uh, Evidential Medium, Debbie Romero. She's kindly giving her time to do one-question re- uh, readings for us. That's Wednesday. Uh, get your questions together because uh, these are always uh, very fun, very enjoyable, and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what Debbie has to say. It's going to be a great uh, program. We are talking with Michael J. Warden. He's the author of uh, The Murder of Richard Jennings, The True Story of New York's First Murder for Hire. Uh, we've also, once again, go to ghostboxradio.com, and you can look up uh, what, uh, our earliest discussion since I went nightly, talking about lynched by a mob, the 1892 lynching of Robert Lewis in Port Jervis, New York. Michael, none of your titles are short, are they, for your book? They are, they are very, I mean, a lot of syllables, a lot of words. They don't fit on any of the art that I make. Um, no, I, I promise my next one, I'll pick a shorter title. Just, 
I hope. <laughs> it just it just needs to be like uh, uh, it just needs to be like a, a letter, not even a word. Just give me a letter, like a, like K or something, and then like <laughs> I think that'd be that'd be that'd be great. Uh, I could do that. Th- uh, yeah, no, you can't. No, no one would want you to. <laughs> Well, Greg said to do so. Um, That's what I'll call the book, though. Greg told me to pick one letter. <laughs> that would be the subtitle. That's my only chance for fame, being being uh, the, the, the villain on a, on a title of a book. <laughs> Lynette says, yes, I agree that a person can redeem their life and, and is another excellent reason not to have the death penalty. Now, I don't want to really get into that whole thing because that's a whole other situation but your point that you made in the last segment uh, Michael is just simply the fact that it you know that they that he was able to redeem himself why don't we just leave it at that that right. he, he was able to redeem himself uh, you know if, if people want to use those things for an argument one way or other that's 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 where they're at with that but um, it's I mean the good news, the end of the day, is that he was able to turn his life around. Right, exactly. And he seemed to have an impact, a positive impact on, on those he, he did come in contact with at some point after his conversion and, of course, when he's released. So, you know, in Jack Hodges' case, this is where what his life became. And, you know, I think there was also a movement at the time just to make prisons a little better. Yeah. You know, at the time, this, you know, the whole notion of incarcerating people for long periods of time was still relatively new, newish. You mm. know, prisons were were starting to evolve. You had Eastern State and, you know, Philly, you had Auburn, Mount or Point Pleasant in New York, which became Sing Sing. So, you know, they were looking for better ways to to try to rehabilitate prisoners in general. Yeah. Um, knowing that most are going to probably get out. Not all, but most. Yeah. Even at that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Chuck has said that uh, there's so much unknown history found in local legends and stories, as you have very much found out, Michael. Um, Chuck has lived in and still lives close by Auburn, and uh, he has never heard this story before. So there you go. Yeah. So, you know, Jim, head over to Canandaigua and uh, the Pioneer Cemetery there. You can see right where... Jack is buried. Um, they have a historical society in town. They actually have his bed. I got to see Jack's bed at the historical society. So, um, you know, they had it up in storage. But, you know, a congregation member who went to the same church that Jack had attended, who was very fascinated with Jack, actually did research on the family, knew what pew they sat in. So when I went up in about 2018, I think it was, to, to speak up there and meet, meet him, you know, I got to see, like, this is where Jack would have sat and worshipped. You know, the the church probably hasn't changed that much. And, you nope. know, the bed, this was his bed that he slept in, that he lived his life in. And a very tangible piece of the past that we don't normally get to connect with sometimes. But I, I find that personal connection with artifacts and locations to be important. Does What does that do for you when you have those uh, connections to pieces like that? And I don't necessarily i mean however you want to answer it because i mean as a paranormal investigator as somebody who is uh you know loves to be steeped in history what does that do for you you know i think it it probably reaches a whole bunch of different aspects of who i am i i'm certainly can't rule out the fact that i have that connection 
as an investigator of the unusual paranormal things, mm -hmm. but also just when you can be at the location of an event or incident, you can stand where the history occurred or touch an item related to that specific case or person. It just closes a gap. You know, there's such a big gap between when I wrote this book, it came out in 2013 and, you know, Jack Hodges dying in the early 1840s. There's a tremendous amount of time has gone by yet. Here's an object that I can physically see, I can physically touch that connects Jack Hodges and myself across this span of time. I can see where he sat. This is his pew, you know? This is where every Sunday he worshiped and, and prayed. And again, it brings you close to that story. And I think that's important. And there's something to be said about as a police officer, as a detective, when you investigate a crime, when you visit the crime scene. Yeah. You know, there's nothing beats you know, going to the scene yourself, even if you're not the one collecting the evidence, going to the crime scene is important. Um, seeing it with your own eyes and understanding it and just um, remembering that these are, you know, I've handled homicides and remembering that the person's death that you're investigating was a person. Yeah. You know, it's not just, you know, a black and white investigation where I'm just strictly you know, you start to remember, yeah, this was a person, you know, who I have to get justice for. And I think that was going to be the next question I, I, I was going to ask that uh, I think you've answered was, why is it important to remember these people? You know, and I don't even mean because it's like I think there's two pieces to it. And I think you've I think you've answered them both very satisfactory where it's it's like, yeah, there's one thing about talking about a heinous crime. There's something talking about something that we all kind of we as true crime fans really like to uh, to experience to as far as reading and stuff, but there is a human level to this, isn't there? That uh, that I, I feel like if if anybody who's going to write about this stuff doesn't include that in some way, you're doing a very huge misjustice for the the material in general. Yeah, I I have to agree with you a hundred million percent, and. I think I and I try to really keep that human connection and that's humanizing the victim, whoever the person is in the mm -hmm. case that that is, you know, killed or assaulted, whatever the case may be. You know, these are people. There's much more to their life than this one moment that defines them. Um, the people associated with that person, what happens to them? What, what did they go through? You know, murder, murders, especially. And I know it, it's almost cliched, but for the person that's murdered it's over. Yeah. They're done. Their suffering yeah. is over. It's the people that are with them and around them. And, you know, I'll just briefly mention as a detective, I had one case, which to this day haunts me. Um, you know, the kids went to school in the morning. Life was normal. They were elementary school kids. And after their dad dropped them off, he came home, murdered their mother and tried to blow himself up in the house. Well, he didn't blow up, but I was, fortunately, I didn't have the job, but I was in my office and, you know, right across the hall, I could hear the crime victim counselor and the juvenile detective telling the children that they're never going to see their mother again. And the, just the horrible, horrible pain that those kids went through. Yeah. And probably still go through to this day. I mean, just that 
that never ends. These people suffer and, you know, it's important to remember them and also remember the people associated with them. They, they continue to suffer. It's never truly over for them. Well, and, and, you know, you think about that too, in the sense of, of the, of the orbit that it creates. You just, as you just mentioned, but you know, the, the I mean, one that you even just talk about, which I'm assuming you understand, you understand it as you talk about it, that it, I mean, it includes yourself. Like this, yes. this, what this person did has now affected you. And it's like, well, you were a detective, obviously this is, but you weren't a detective on the case and you were, you were just in there, um, you know, and you're hearing it, but it's, it's never left you. I mean, these are the, these are the uh, residual effects of, of when someone does something like that. And you could probably have that a million times over with different detectives and police officers throughout history who have seen, or soldiers who have seen stuff and it's never, never left them, you know, because of what one act, something that happened, the effect of it. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a few things that still haunt me and probably will till I'm dead, but that's just, you know, well, and this I, is part of the job. And, well, it, yeah. I mean, uh, I also think about too, like uh, an, an effect, I mean, of like, as I always think about my great uncle who, who was on Normandy and he doesn't, he never had talked really about it, but when he did, uh, he tells the story of when they're in the tanks and he's on the beaches of Normandy and his tank buddy, uh, decided to see what was going on out there by lifting his head into out of the tank, right? You could already see where this is going. Uh, and he comes back in the, in the tank without a head. And, you know, yeah. it's just, I mean, my great, my great uncle passed away in 1997 and I'm still, you know, this has, that hasn't left me. I mean, it's, that's the thing. That's the human side of it. And I, I think that's what, you know, keeps us on the side of, hopefully on the side of, you know, not killing everybody in sight because we are, we, we, we feel that, uh, empathy of, of those moments. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Emily in the, on the, uh, chat, she says humans are capable of great and terrible things. And I think that's, maybe that's the name of your next book. Yeah, that's, it really sums it up, Emily. I think, <laughs> perfectly. Really, does. really it's, it's, you know, look at, you know, people are, we are capable of putting people on the moon and, and sending the Voyager spacecraft at the edge of our, our solar system. And then we're also capable of just the worst inhumanity towards one another in the same breath. And it's, um, so I try to focus on the positive though. You know, we, yeah. we, we continue to move forward, hopefully. So as we have just a couple minutes left, I have to ask you, Mr. UFO, your thoughts in Miami this, this last weekend. Uh, yeah, I don't think it was aliens. I know I saw what was supposed to have been a video of an alien. Yeah, I didn't is... see an alien in that no, video. No. <laughs> yeah, it was like a someone, I don't know, it was a cell phone. It just looked like a very dark and, you know, image with things moving in it. Um, you know, as much as I'd like to think we're having an alien invasion, I don't know how that could have been hidden very well. As much as I'd like to think we're having an alien invasion. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Okay. That's, that's well. That's the that's the paranormal researcher in me. You know. I mean, I'm also the guy wow. that used to say, you know, uh, I'll, I'll try not to get too excited when the zombie apocalypse happens. You know. Oh my gosh. That's that's uh, you know everyone's gonna be freaking out, and you're out there going, finally, where were you? Um, yeah. 
yeah, take and, me with you. <laughs> well, and and that's an interesting thing too, kind of based on what we're talking about with the book uh, as well, is those myth and legend sort of things where you know what we're hearing is that everybody is seeing something different than what's being reported. Um, right. And it's, you know, you're like, are we having a men in black moment here or something? But the, the thing ultimately is, is that even in this day and age, uh, you know, and when we talked about the world being connected, it doesn't matter. No one, you know, people are not getting the facts correct. Right, right. Misinformation is so much. The game of telephone today is a lot easier to happen with the Internet. Well, and you got you do have to wonder a little bit too, if you know. I mean, not wonder. I mean, it's a fact that people, you know, love to put out the wrong information as well, you know, and yes. cause cause stirs and stuff. And we're we're out of time, so I don't know if any of the stuff we had <laughs> talked about with the legends and stuff for Richard Jennings' case, if that's the case. But once again, folks, go and buy the book, "The Murder of Richard Jennings: The True Story of New York's First Murder for Hire." Uh, definitely, uh, you get it through Amazon. If you get it through Ghostbox Radio, uh, go to Ghostbox Book Club. If you get it through there, we get a little bit of money back, just a couple, a couple pennies, which is probably more than you got paid to write the book. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's something, right? I mean, that's absolutely, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just too, too funny and true, too true at the same time. Michael J. Warden, as always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Well, thank you. This was fun. I really appreciated it. Once again, folks, go please support uh, authors like Michael because these are great, great books. A lot of work put into them. Uh, tomorrow, we are going to be talking with Mr. Zero, and we're going to talk about all sorts of great things. We'll see you tomorrow. Everyone, have a great night. <laughs>